The future of business is responsible. El futuro de los negocios es reescribir el crecimiento de las empresas. Conscious commingling of growth and impact. Le futur du business est conscient et responsable. The future of business is intentional and transparent. The Welcome to the Future of Business podcast, where we take you on a journey to explore the diverse range of sectors and stories embedded here in the Oxford MBA. My name is Andreas Finzel. And I will be hosting our conversation today with Caitlin Nices Mokano. And we're going to talk about her work in public health on a tiny, tiny Pacific island. Caitlin and I met and her children as well. And I'm so excited to have her here today. Caitlin, how are you? Very good. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much, Andreas. I remember when I first met you and you talked about your work on this tiny island and it blew my mind. But let's kind of understand what exactly happened. So can you briefly tell us where exactly you worked and what kind of work you did there? So since 2010, I've lived on an island called Saipan. It's 100 miles north of Guam. It's east of the Philippines. Um, it's about 7,000 miles away from here. And since about 2013, I started working on healthcare and public health there locally for the local government. Thank you so much. I love how you describe where it is, that it's close to Guam, which is literally the next bigger island. For anybody who has a globe, it is pretty much between Japan and Australia, Definitely. in the middle. And if you look at Google Maps, it's just blue. You have to really zoom in to find any land there. It's a dot. But it's also an incredible place to live and to work, um, especially if you work in something like public health that is so dependent on scale. And I'm excited to dive deeper with you into how it works and how it's different in different areas. So before we start, briefly, just to get a perspective today, what is public health? Public health, it's difficult to draw the boundaries around public health, but it's a, a field where we promote and protect the health of people anywhere they live, learn, work, and play. It's really about setting up people and their environments for health. Um, and that doesn't mean, just mean the absence of disease. So it's also just really well-being and, and health promotion. I love that. So I always think of it like when I leave the men's room and there's a sign that says, did you wash your hands? That is part of public health. That is public health. But there's definitely much more to it. So, Caitlin, can you take me in? What are some of the current public health priorities? Well, communicable disease is suddenly very important again with COVID. Communicable diseases are those diseases that you can catch from another person, just to be clear. And uh, immunization and uh, the tension between the individual and, you know, the government or kind of collective behavior really came, came forward in, during the COVID pandemic. And that's something that exists, you know, it has existed in public health throughout history, but, you know, it really came to a head during COVID. Um, obviously, mental health is something that is, it has, you know, it has been a problem for a while, but now, fortunately, it's becoming, um, it's coming to the surface. Uh, Non-communicable diseases are a threat in developing countries, in developed countries and developing countries. Um, I think they're the most um, crucial threat um, to to health and to people and to economies in the world right now. 
to these are diseases like cancer yes, that you can't catch from somebody else. Yeah, diseases yeah. that you can't okay. catch from somebody else. Um, typically, when someone says non-communicable disease, they're talking about things like uh, high blood pressure and diabetes, obesity, things that are um, that you accumulate basically over the over the course of your life. And um, health equity is something that's at the top of everyone's mind. And health equity means that everyone gets the opportunity to um, achieve their full potential for health and well-being. So that crosses the spectrum from social determinants of health, like poverty and education, to things like access to healthcare services. Yeah, I think it's it's a really important point. Especially here in Oxford, we live in a bubble of wealthy, educated, more or less fit, healthy people. And for us, public health quite often really feels like wash your hands after you go to the toilet. Um, And it's important to understand that this is an incredible privilege. Absolutely. And that public health can really look very, very, very different. Not too far from here. We don't have to go to Nigeria or Yemen to find different scenarios, but we might just as well look in the suburbs of some of the British cities where nutrition looks very different. Um, So now you, you mentioned a couple of factors here, really. Communicable diseases, non-communicable diseases, mental health, uh, and health equity. And maybe we can dive deeper into at least some of them. Um, I always feel like with COVID, public health got pushed into the spotlight. I remember this briefly, not vividly. In Germany, we have like a center for disease prevention and control. And obviously it has been there for the last 100 (laughs) years. But nobody ever cared about a plague coming or anything. And then suddenly, everybody turns to these public health experts. And I guess it can be exciting. I don't think people like you ask for this. And we're like, yes, now finally people listen to us. Um, But can you maybe talk a little bit about why we got better in controlling these diseases or or if we got better in them? Oh, that's a really great question. So um, when everything is going well in public health, you don't notice. Um, So it's, uh, it's like a good DJ at a party, right? Um, you're just having a great time and everything's going well. And it's only when that DJ starts playing, you know, red, red wine um, that everyone starts to notice. That is a great metaphor. <laughs> great metaphor. Um, Public health is like a DJ. <laughs> as long as it's going well, you don't notice. But the second it doesn't go well, you leave the club. <laughs> just in club. that case, you can't leave. But do continue. Yes. Yeah. So everyone, you know... Um, became epidemiologists, everyone started to learn about public health statistics and, you know, what transmission rates meant. And that was really fun. Um, but then it also means that it's, you know, it's very difficult to, um, you know, to explain or to understand these concepts very quickly. Um, oh. So you get kind of snippets or sound bites of things and, you know, someone kind of runs with that. And it's, so it's difficult to kind of you know, control the narrative or to, you know, to give a comprehensive answer in a short, short amount of time, you know, with, with a, like a soundbite. When these things start affecting people's lives, they started recognizing, oh, you know, we, we just take all these things for granted. We take being able to talk to someone in person for granted. Um, but that actually presents a very real risk with COVID. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really good point how you say that we, some people take it for granted. Because clearly in some regions, like Southeast Asia, they had other pandemics in the, in the decades prior, so they knew. Or for example, my mother works in a refugee uh, facility, and when COVID broke out, I asked her if the refugees are really scared. 
But then my mom said they are not because they have been living in camps for the for years, and they have seen lots of sicknesses come and spread, and they understand how diseases are communicated and understand the risk behind it. Um, and they were much calmer in listening to what they can do to prevent it than the entitled Germans that refused to get the vaccine and refused to wear masks because that didn't cross their mind that this is an actual disease now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, and, and that's the tension between the individual and the community, right? So with the, all the challenges with younger people or healthier people not understanding the impact that they might have of tra- or the, the role they play in transmission um, to someone who's more vulnerable, um, that's the tension between the individual and the collective, right? Yeah, and there's clearly no good answer to this. Right. There is rights, everybody should have freedom, and everybody should play a good role in this. Um, let's briefly talk about this tension before we move away from communicable diseases. Um, so, I mean, in COVID, I think it's kind of quite clear. Well, the fact, you know, not wearing a mask feels great, but I might infect the lady next to me in the tube. Um, can you tell us a, a different example of the conflicts of so, the rights of the individual and the community? Um, one that, you know, took place in the 70s and 80s in the U.S. was seatbelts. Um, is, you know, it's viewed as it was, and now it's, you know, taken for granted that it's a safe thing to do. Um, but it was seen as something that was, you know, like seatbelt laws, especially when they came into effect in the 90s, you know, later, um, were seen as an infringement on, you know, my right to do what I would want to in the car, or, you know, I, I don't want to wear a seatbelt, I shouldn't have to. Um, but recognize, I think it's important to recognize the effect that that would have is not just on yourself, um, but also on the healthcare system, you know, when you have a worse outcome from a car crash um, yeah. and you have to be rushed to the ER and you're not in ICU because you weren't wearing a seatbelt. Um, so that affects everyone. That affects the first responders. That affects the, the healthcare staff. And and that's similar in COVID, right? Um, when originally we, we, we weren't sure how things were being transmitted or, um, you know, what how contagious it was, it, the, the guidelines would just, you know, stay home, stay away from other people. We need to preserve our healthcare resources. We can't have everyone flooding the, the healthcare system, which happened, still happened in many parts of the world where there just weren't hospital beds open. Um, so, th- so that's kind of the, it's something that feels very individual, but then downstream, it ac- actually has a very, you know, very strong ripple effect. I think the other day we were talking, and I think you said something interesting, you said, on an island as small as Saipan, that ripple effect is much easier to understand. Yes. Absolutely. You talked about how in a big city, people don't really understand what what it means for the healthcare system to collapse or when supply chains are affected. But if you know everybody on the island and there's just one hospital, it becomes very clear to you very quickly when the bottom is reached. And I think that's a that's a great example. Um, you you mentioned a couple of other healthcare priorities. Um, let's maybe talk about non-communicable diseases like diabetes. Um, what are public health care priorities in these areas? Um, well, you know, generally, um, the social determinants of health are huge when it comes to non-communicable diseases. Unfortunately for non-communicable diseases, the time horizon for developing them is so long, and the time horizon for bending the curve is very long, because these are, these are this isn't an instant thing. Where, you know, where COVID, you get COVID, you get over COVID, you're vaccinated for COVID. It's all very real time and it really affects your life. But, you know, diabetes, you know, especially type 2 diabetes um, is built up over, you know, 30 years or 50 years of, you know, someone's life. 
Um, so it's very difficult to, um, to figure out what exactly are the priorities. Um, but we know that things like poverty, education, nutrition are huge um, in, in, in terms of diabetes. Um, and then downstream, once diabetes, you know, is developed, uh, then, you know, access to healthcare, access to appropriate healthcare for, for secondary and tertiary prevention to make sure that that diabetes is managed and that you don't end up getting amputated or, you know, in dialysis. Um, yeah, incredible. I think we, again, it is a stark reminder of how different the environment can be depending on where you grow up. Exactly. Yeah, in Germany, it's here in Germany. In Germany or here in the UK, it's, it's quite easy um, to get access to good and healthy food. Mm-hmm. Um, and on an island like Saipan, it's very difficult. Um, I used to live and work in India, and we worked with the Ministry of Health, and that was their number one priority as well. Mm-hmm. Non-communicable diseases, trying to get people to eat more healthy um, and to move more. Um, and what really surprised me back then was um, that one of the biggest issues was that for women of an older generation, exercise was considered inappropriate. Mm-hmm. So the government and our agency tried very hard to somehow communicate um, that a lady too has to take care of her health and her body by going to the gym. And it ended up with women in their 40s in a full sari, mm-hmm. sitting on the treadmill <laughs> and like walking slowly just to get something done. And that was probably one of the healthier ones because she went. Went, yeah. And, the, well, and that's, you know, when public health starts looking at these things, or when we looked at these things through public health lens, we, we think about, okay, how can we design, you know, where someone works, lives, plays better so that they don't have to go to the gym, right? So that they get regular activity in just their daily life, like, you know, mobile active transportation, walking, biking, when, when, when a city or when a, a community is set up that, you know, these, that you can just maintain a healthy lifestyle without thinking about it too much, that's the ideal circumstance. So, you know, we know in Oxford that active transportation is mostly how everyone, how many people get around. Um, so we know that we're getting, you know, I get my steps in every day by not even thinking about it. So yeah. um, design is a huge part of, of public health as well. Yeah, in Oxford and Copenhagen, we walk and we cycle. Mm-hmm. And in Abu Dhabi or Saipan, it's very, mm-hmm. very complicated. And again, um, you said, like, you came back to the point like people don't notice. Mm-hmm. So if we manage to design the environment well, then we come back to the DJ that's invisible. Exactly. Um, and then we can no credit for it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but at the same time, <clears throat> that is it is hard to make people do something mm-hmm. unless it's the default choice. Yes. If mm-hmm. healthy and active lifestyle is the default choice, then it's very easy to maintain it. Mm-hmm. But the moment it's an extra or a real effort for people. It gets very difficult to convince them to mm-hmm. do anything. Um, now, we already do all kinds of differences between mostly regions or levels of income. Um, and maybe it's a good moment to pivot to talk about health equity. Um, I think it's a bit of a complicated word, so maybe you can just briefly say what health equity means again. Sure. Um, and then talk about some examples. So you already made the comparison of, you know, Oxford versus maybe some suburb or something of, you know, of the UK where the environment is not set up in the same way. So, um, you know, incomes might be lower, maybe education is, is less, um, food might be not as easy to come by or healthy food might not be as easy to come by. Maybe it's more difficult to walk. Maybe you don't have a healthcare clinic nearby. Um, so those are all, those are all components of health equity. 
Um, and really, when we talk about health equity, it, it's, it's a, a lot about the social determinants of health. So what is your socioeconomic status and how does that position you in the world where, you know, what opportunities do you have um, to be healthy or, you know, or not, you know, to, to promote your health? Or are there all these factors that conspire against you um, to, to keep you from being healthy? Yeah. Do we have equal access and chances in health or not? It's the about day, chances, opportunities, yeah. yeah. Opportunities are great mm -hmm. word. The other day, I, here in the UK, I call a dentist and ask for an appointment. And the answer was simply, for 60 bucks, you can come today. Mm -hmm. Or you can come in six weeks for free. Mm -hmm. And that is not equal access to opportunities. Um, and I think one thing we didn't touch upon it was mental health. Yeah, so mental health is very complex, as I think a lot of people are have known and are realizing more that factors like trauma, isolation, social disadvantage, bereavement, stress, discrimination, um, and then also long-term physical health conditions. So, you know, your, your own health status can contribute to your mental health status. Um, so these are all very complex and similarly to, uh, you know, unweaving social determinants, um, the factors which make someone me mentally healthy um, are, are pretty difficult to line up. Um, and it is, I think, um, it can be a little bit more individual um, because of the, the factors like discrimination and trauma yeah, than absolutely. something like, you know, like population health interventions for diabetes can be a little bit more population-based. Um, but when it comes to mental health, there, there are individual factors more so, I think, than, you know, than other diseases that, you know, contribute to mental health or mental illness yeah and um i, I often look around in, in the in the jobs i've worked um and also here in the mba um and i realize there's a very very little margin for error when it comes to mental health um and if i, if I break a foot and i'm limping for a week then it's not going to be a problem at all but if it only takes a bad breakup to fall out a piece of face mm -hmm. and it could really easily throw you out of the environment you're in. Um, and I have volunteered with, with homeless people in Germany, and usually what happens is that they had mental health struggles mm -hmm. that disabled them from using the social services mm -hmm. that are available for as little as three months. And that's all it takes for you to, to follow entirely. Um, and in a society where the demands to a person, our performance demands, are so heavily based on our mind and our brain, um, and so little on our physical performance. I, I keep on being stunned. And, the, and that's the invisible versus the visible, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's so point, you might see someone's physical health condition and, you know, make allowances or there's accommodation, but when you can't see someone, you know, what someone's going, what's going on in someone's mind, um, it's very difficult to, um, to make appropriate accommodations or, you know, to give them what they need um kind of briefly touch upon some of the the things that make public health so difficult i think you already mentioned a couple of them one is that it's often not a priority for individuals so i think what we said earlier was if the healthy choice is a default choice we can expect people to make it and if it's an effort then it's unlikely that we get people to do it i mean clearly it's hard to measure the impact of public health it takes forever until we see the effects. Um, sometimes it's really difficult to translate the big picture into a concrete action. 
So we see that there's more and more teenagers depressed. But it's hard to know, should we kick Facebook out or should we start doing class in schools or should we change the way they eat so they actually get skinnier? Um, and I think, thirdly, we talked about the rights of the individuals versus the community. Mm. So, you know, to what extent are you allowed not to wear a mask um, or whatnot? Maybe to to round this up, um, let's let's come back to the island, sure. uh, to Saipan. Can you just, if, if you would have to, like, point out one key difference between public health in the UK and public health on Saipan, what, what would it be for you? Um, well, I think the proximity to... <sighs> tragedy or the proximity to risk um, in Saipan is so much greater than than what we feel here in Oxford in the UK. Um, we are so much closer to, you know, natural disasters like typhoons, um, which we've had a couple of really terrible ones. And, you know, that contributes to not only, you know, people really losing their homes and their lives, but also the trauma of that and the rebuilding and um, so I think th uh, that in, in some way contributes to a community in, in, on the islands that is, uh, you know, more collective and everyone experiences typhoons in a similar way. Not everyone has, you know, st as strong houses. Um, but when something like COVID hits, um, we have a feeling of this is going to be bad and we need to work together and we need to think about each other. And, um, you know, when the supply chain problems happened on Saipan, it was like, you know, no big news. It was something that everyone's kind of used to. Not that it's, you know, good or justified, but it was something that um, is not really so much of a shock. Um, so I think, and, and, and conversely, in the, in the, in the unfortunate way, um, when we have so much, so many of our you know, our residents, our neighbors, our friends dying early, dying, you know, prematurely from um, you know, from diabetes or from oral cancer um, yep. is a big one. There's a, a drug called betel nut that's used that's that causes yeah, a lot of oral that. cancer. Um, so conversely, you know, that kind of like acceptance or, you know, that that familiarity with tragedy um, creates an, a, an environment where those things are kind of okay. You know, it's kind of like, well, okay, you know, people are dying prematurely, but, you know, we're kind of used to it. Um, so, so that's that's kind of the it's a double-edged sword for sure. Yeah, on the one hand, you're you're okay with it, <laughs> but at the same time, you're aware of it. Right, exactly. Something can be good and bad. This has been an incredible time for you to with you to discuss, um, and I really, really love the way that you can look at this from both like a a big perspective as a you know U.S. citizen, but at the same time, you see this this tiny, tiny islands. Um, I think the other day we talked and we talked about how it was for you to come here and you mentioned that it almost felt like waking up out of a dream after 10 years on this it, it really was. Um, yeah, it was like the story of Rip, Rip Van Winkle, um, which is an American novel where a man falls asleep uh, after drinking in the mountains and wakes up and the American Revolution happened and uh, he doesn't know where his dog is um, and he has a long gray beard. Um, that's kind of how I feel. I've, I, I woke up, you know, from going there when I was 24, and now I'm 36. I've got gray hair. All of a sudden, you know, the world has changed, uh, you know, around me. Of course, I've been off the island, but um, yeah, it really is like waking up from this long, amazing island dream where, you know, a lot of things happened, you know, in, in that dream. Um, 
But yeah, you, you build a career, you raise the kid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You got into the MBA program yeah. <laughs> and now you're here with me. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. It was an absolute pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much, Andres. And thank you to all of you who are listening. I hope to have you back for the next episode next week. And until then, take care.